Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, meet me in Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5, meaning a portion of that chapter here, verses 15 through verse 23. And of course, the, the passages uh, in your, your bulletin, it will be on the screen. Now, if this is your first time with us, we've uh, been in a, a series in the book of Proverbs. Uh, we've had some guest speakers uh, throughout the summer that have uh, blessed us through various passages. Uh, but we're back in, in Proverbs this week, and, uh, and Pastor Daniel will conclude uh, this series next week. Uh, in this series, we have spent time considering how to live wisely in regards to various topics that Proverbs addresses, uh, ranging from decision-making to the use of the tongue, uh, friendship, and there are certainly many other relevant topics from Proverbs that, that help us to, to live in alignment uh, with God's ways. Uh, today, we're going to engage a prominent topic in Proverbs. Uh, we're going to talk about sex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Uh, Proverbs dedicates whole chapters on discussing sex. Chapter 5 is one of them. Uh, and, and I know the, the moment that you heard me say the word sex, many reactions are coming up for several of you. Some of you are intrigued, some of you are terrified, some of you are internally rolling your eyes. Uh, there aren't many topics that are more provocative than the topic of sex. Lots of ranging opinions, and honestly, the church is uh, often perceived as increasingly irrelevant and unwelcome to the conversation. I've realized this perception in, in many instances, but one comes to mind that was really fascinating to me uh, when it happened. Uh, I sometimes teach theology uh, for, a high, for high school seniors uh, at a school here in town, and I always enjoy the times of discussion. Uh, one, of these activity, one of the activities I do uh, in the class for discussion is play a game called Spectrum, where I give a prompt such as, truth is objective, uh, all religions are the same, uh, Christians are open-minded. And I point to, to this wall, this means strongly agree, and this wall means strongly disagree, and the students have to plot themselves somewhere on the spectrum uh, and share from their perspective on the prompt uh, and share whether or not they agree to what degree and disagree to what degree. I love this activity because it gives space to hear different perspectives and gain insights from one another. And I have always had students that were all, kind of all over the place religiously, from staunch atheists to kind of poster child, young life ministry kids. Um, and so you can imagine the response to the prompts were kind of over, all over the place as well um, as they spoke from their particular worldview. And so during one of these spectrum activities, I gave the prompt, the church is the best place to learn about sex and sexuality. Every other prompt in the semester, there was diversity of opinions. <laughs> but not this one. Uh, when I gave this prompt, every single student swiftly went to the disagree side. Every time I have taught this class, this happens. And it's fascinating to hear the objections. And then I ask, 
So where is the best place to learn about sex and sexuality? And, and I won't share what I have heard students say, but let's just say anything that you can imagine that an 18-year-old would say about where to learn about sex, they said it. And it was eye-opening for me because uh, they were all in agreement that we shouldn't talk about this here. And here's what we need to own as the Church of Jesus Christ. Will Mueller says that when it comes to sex, we have often failed to trust well, to teach well, and to treat well. We haven't trusted well that the Bible's vision for sex is actually really good and important to share for human flourishing. We haven't taught well because the conversation is so often dripping with contempt that our teaching is often truncated, reactionary, and lacking in humility. We often taught anti-biblical ideas out of fear or cultural syncretism. We, we have not treated well. We have shamed and silenced and deflected and dismissed to the point where many in the emerging generation don't even think about the church when they are asking important and inevitable questions about their sex life. So, we're going to talk about sex today. I don't expect a whole lot of amens, and that's okay. <laughs> I'm going to preach this word anyhow. We're going to share very briefly. Let me, let me just offer a couple prefaces uh, as we jump in. Uh, first, uh, your story might be like mine in that you have experienced sexual trauma and abuse. And you're here and you're wondering if you can handle the next few minutes. Because you're concerned about the physical reactions that might come up. And I want you to know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. His grace is sufficient. You are safe here. That being said, I know that people are all over the place in their journey of integrating experiences like that back into their story. And so if you feel like you need to leave, I want to say from the pulpit that that is okay. You're welcome to do that at any time as I'm sharing. Probably the easiest time is when we stand to read the passage, you're not climbing over people. Um, but I trust that the Holy Spirit will work. Second preface, you might be questioning if your loved one can handle this topic. Uh, maybe you have a child or a teen with you. And maybe it's just you and you're not looking forward to debriefing the sermon on the ride home from church today. Uh, let me just encourage you that the, the sex talk should happen early and it should happen regularly. In our household, we've been talking to our daughter about sex since she was two years old, partially because that's when she started asking questions. And the more you avoid the topic, the more you send a signal that this conversation and the questions that accompany it are not welcome in this family. And they will go elsewhere to find answers. 
But uh, if you don't feel prepared to navigate the potential ripple effects of this sermon, reach out to us. We would love to provide support and resources. Jordan Reich, our children's ministry director, uh, facilitated a conference last year for parents to talk with their kids uh, about sex, and those resources could be helpful. And of course, the offer for support and resources isn't just relegated to, uh, to folks that are, that are parents, but if you have questions, period, we, we want to be a place uh, to welcome those questions and concerns. We want to support you in keeping the talk going in healthy ways. I could give more prefaces, but then we would never actually get to the sermon. So let me just say this last thing before we stand and read our passage. Regardless of your experience or your worldview, um, one thing is absolutely true when it comes to sex. Sex needs wisdom. To say you don't need wisdom is like saying you don't need wisdom to drive a car. There was a lot of foolishness out here when it comes to sex, and I actually think we're in a cultural moment where people are questioning what are the yeses and the noes when it comes to sex. That's a wonderful question. And everybody has to answer that question on some level. Otherwise, you could be in danger of doing great harm or at least something that's possibly illegal. So as we're being formed in our beliefs about sex through media, music, conversations, experiences, exposures, we, we're all growing in our ideas about what sex is, what it should be, and what's good, bad, permissible, and prohibited. We are trying to be wise. So something important for us to consider is whether or not uh, that wisdom is framed and shaped by God's word and the gospel. We need the Lord's help. So, if you're able, I want to invite you to stand as we read Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15 through verse 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord, we acknowledge that we need your help to know truth, to know grace, and to receive and embrace it as a foundation and the center of our lives. Lord, thank you this privilege to be in your word. Pray, Lord, as I speak to the ear, you would speak to the heart and transform lives. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Who's really in control? That's an overarching question in the art world. Is it the artist or is it the art dealer? This question was on display in a recent NPR article on the Kunsten Museum of Modern Art in Denmark and the artist Jens Hanning. 
The museum commissioned Hanning to create a piece for their exhibition on the working life of the future. They called it Work It Out. They wanted art that would reflect various aspects and challenges of work in society. The museum hired Jens Hanning to create a piece to showcase the wage gaps that many Danes experience in the workforce. They provided Hanning with two blank canvases, a few materials, and the equivalent of $84,000 to use within the art piece. Quite literally, they, they wanted the money to be in the painting on the canvas. When the staff received Hanning's work, they were surprised. The, the package was delivered, they, they opened the package, they pulled out the canvases, and the canvases were completely blank. There was a little card in the package that, that read what the title of the pieces were, and Hanning's titled it, Take the Money and Run. <laughs> Take the Money and Run. The CEO at the museum contacted Hanning and asked him where the art was they requested. And Hanning told them that was the art. To seize an opportunity to take money offered to you and do with it what you will for your needs, that's the art. He would later say it was commentary on the wage gap of artists. Needless to say, this sparked controversy in the art community and abroad. Some people called it brilliant art. Other people called it theft. <laughs> and it elevated questions in the art community about how artists are treated and how much control they have over their work. And one takeaway question that isn't resolved yet is who's really in control? Is it the consumer or is it the creator? A similar question persists in our culture when it comes to sex. Who's really in control? Who gets to decide what it is and how it's used? Is it the consumer or is it the creator? Did you even know that God created sex? Because if he created it, he owns the rights to it. Four things are true about sex, and these four things need God's wisdom. Sex is powerful, sex is pleasurable, sex is purposeful, and sex is protected. First, sex is powerful. It carries intrinsic weight and impact in its use. We, we see this when we consider the origins of sex. Genesis 1:28. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 2:24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Genesis is addressing, among other things, the reality and the power of sex. Of all the things the Lord could have highlighted when showcasing humanity as the crown piece of creation as we are made in his image, he chose to highlight sex. It's powerful. And we know that, don't we? That's why sex sells, as they say. It's why you see sexual expressions and innuendos all over the place. I was once watching a Swiffer commercial and the woman was being suggestive. Just last night, my wife and I were watching a car commercial and the lady said she must have a car that's sexy. I didn't know that there was such an association between cars and sex, but apparently there is in our culture. 
It's powerful. So powerful that it often becomes a main identifier for us, which will make it difficult to know how to use it wisely. Sam Alberry speaks to this when he says, sexual identity has become a powerful force in Western society. We have made sexuality the foundation for self-understanding. Therefore, sexual behavior has become a primary means of self-expression. To restrict sexual behavior is to stop someone from being who they are. He goes on to say, the problem with this is that it leads us to think that a life without this is barely a life worth living. That those who for any reason are unable to fulfill their sexual desires are missing out on the one true chance they have of being fully who they are. We need to realize how damaging this message could be. It raises the stakes dangerously high from a man who's single and celibate. What Sam Alberry is getting at is that sex is powerful, but it's not ultimate. And to put our conceptions of fulfillment into who we sleep with will inevitably put unsustainable pressure on us. Secondly, sex is pleasurable. It's important to acknowledge that because part of the reason, part of the power of sex comes from how pleasurable it is because it is a holistic experience. You are being impacted emotionally, physically, spiritually. In our passage this morning, a father is talking to his son about this pleasure. He likens it to an intoxication in verse 19 and 20. He likens it to quenching a thirst in verse 15 and 16. He's even graphic about this pleasure in describing his wife's breasts in verse 19. Certainly, this is not the only place where such descriptive language is found about sex. Song of Solomon is a whole book on this. God wired us to enjoy pleasure, and he designed sex to be pleasurable. But God desired pleasure to be a means and not an end. Paul Tripp gives us helpful framework here when he says, you will never understand pleasure if you think it is an end in itself. Your enjoyment of pleasure is all according to God's design, but we must understand that pleasure has a purpose beyond the momentary enjoyment it gives us. Pleasure exists as a sign of the one in whose arms I will enjoy the only pleasure that can satisfy and give rest to my heart. Why is sexual addiction and sexually compulsive behavior so common today? One of the reasons is because so many of us believe the lie that pleasure is the end instead of the means to an end. We believe the lie that it will give us the rest that we crave, and so we cling to pleasure like a pacifier when we're bored or stressed or afraid or angry. And we do not give enough thought to what pleasure is actually pointing to the place where rest for our hearts truly happens. Which leads me to my, my third point. Sex is purposeful. Sex has a purpose. And everyone on some level is identifying that in how they act sexually. Sex is never truly meaningless, no matter what anybody says. Even if they are just hooking up, there's a purpose in that, even if it's casual. I sometimes listen to this podcast of, of five teenagers. 
Uh, and these five teenagers, they pontificate and philosophize on various teenage topics. Uh, I listen to the podcast because it helps me encounter how the emerging generation is understanding the world around them. Uh, and they say very uh, teenagerish things uh, in this podcast. On one episode, they were talking about sex and its purpose. And they were all sharing from their different perspectives. And, and one of them shared, and it really, really hit me hard. Um, listen to what was shared here. It said, over time, I've stopped seeing sex as something special. It's just something I do. It's casual in a lot of my relationships and situationships. And it's not as meaningful anymore. And sometimes I think I don't really even want to do it, but I still indulge in it because I get a lot of my validation off of having sex. So it's not necessarily that I want to have sex with this person. It's just I know that they want something from me. And if I give it to them, then I can be validated. That craving for me, even if it's not me, it's just my body. It's enough for me to want to do something just so I can feel validated. It hurt my heart to hear that. And I've heard that sentiment in different ways from so many people trying to understand the purpose of sex. Because God designed sex for intimacy, to be known and to know. And even if you have reduced it to just a casual transaction, you are making a claim about its, its purpose. For the Christian, sex is far more than a consumer good. It is a self-giving act that only makes sense in a covenant of marriage from God. And I know that some of us in here will consider that old-fashioned, antiquated thinking, and, uh, and it depends on who's telling the story. If you look at the church and its history, especially the first century, the church was all, always holding a higher sexual ethic than the broader culture. Rome in the first century had temple prostitution, concubines, legalized sexual slavery. They didn't have an age of consent for children. There was indulgence in all directions, yet the church's message was consistently a message of honor God with your bodies, 1 Corinthians 6.20. Control your bodies in holiness and honor, 1 Thessalonians 4.4. 4. From Genesis to Revelation, marriage was always given as the avenue for flourishing sexual intimacy. And by the way, you have to be careful to not conflate intimacy with sex. There are plenty of people having sex that aren't experiencing intimacy. That's why some married people are so disappointed. Because they thought marriage would cure their intimacy issues and it only complicated their intimacy issues. Sex is designed. It's designed to express intimacy, not create it. God blessed them, and God blesses intimacy. And as Dad Allender says, God blesses what arouses us when the erotic stimulation violates neither the love of God nor the love of others. We're somewhat okay with the idea of not violating our neighbor, but we do not give enough thought about not violating God. Which leads me to my last point. Sex is protected. It's protected. God blesses sex. Verse 18, let your fountain be, be blessed. And what God blesses, he protects. He protects because he wants to see it treated in a particular way. There's a lot of confusion in our culture around this. 
Is sex merely an urge to satisfy like hunger or thirst? Or is it something far more precious? It's confusing. It's, it's confusing to treat something as meaningless as eating a cheeseburger, yet at the same time treating it so utterly meaningful that it substantiates your very existence. That's confusing. So how can we protect? How can we protect from, from violation, from betrayal, from broken trust? Some might think consent will cover all of that. Just make sure you have consent and you can do whatever you want. Enthusiastic consent and you're fine. And we're seeing so much disappointment in our culture. Certainly, it's not less than that, but it is vastly more than that. The vision we are given in the gospel is this beautiful self-giving act that is meant to exhibit the consuming love of Christ for his church. But the problem, the fundamental problem is that we are ensnared by our rebellion against God. We are held fast by the cords of sin, as verse 22 says. We are led astray by our foolishness, verse 23. So instead of sex being something given, it's something taken. Instead of sex being something guarded by covenant, it's denigrated through consumerism. And, and here's where we in the church often miss the mark. Well, we hear that, that sex is, is powerful and pleasurable and purposeful and, and protected, and we say amen, hopefully. But then we misunderstand that we are as sexually foolish as anyone. We are. And sexual faithfulness and integrity is not a matter of, of willpower. It's a matter of surrender. Surrender to the one who sets us free to live according to his will. We need the Lord's help. And we never graduate out of that need. So let me end the way I began with this question. Who's really in control? Who gets to make gets to make the decisions about your sex life. Is it the consumer or is it the creator? Christ came to rescue sexual fools. May we run to him and learn sexual wisdom as a gift of his grace. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Lord, your, your words teaching on both sexuality's meaning and practice was a bombshell in the ancient world and is again today. It infuriates and confounds both the prudish and the licentious. Give your people the wisdom to see and love your wisdom about your creation, the gift of sex. Lord, the stories our society bombards us with make sex either too transcendent or too common. Preserve your people from these distortions so that both married and single Christians may understand sex in its true nature as covenantal love. We ask in Jesus' name.
Amen.